In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, come on tight as we carefully do not believe you all. In order that all sentient beings Buddhahood, come on tight as we carefully do not believe you all. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood, come on tight as we carefully do not believe you all. Whatever the virtues in the many fields of knowledge, all the steps on the path of omniscience, may they survive in the clear air of intellect. Oh, Manjushri, please accomplish this. You know, Manjushri is not like out there somewhere, right? Not like we're praying actually to some, some being out there that's going to make us smart or something, right? <laughs> you guys all know that. Okay, never mind. Hey, so tonight we uh, finish up the commentary on the uh, what is it called? The profound inner principles. The last chapter is chapter nine the three states of being and then we dive into another uh, text so let's see chapter 9 page 161 fortunately this part is pretty straightforward it has six parts but I only list two of them and we dive into the first one which is the two Realities, and the name of the chapter is the instruction on the basis of purification and the means of purification of all phenomena. <clears throat> this is a turns out to be a very common and important scheme in Vajrayana, a skillful means of the Vajrayana, whereas there really is no no basis and no means ultimately, but uh, relatively. These work wonders. First, the two realities, meaning the two levels of truth, uh, ultimate and conventional, which is taught by two in two and a half verses. That's one and a quarter verse per truth. In the great Vajrayana, the following are inseparable. <clears throat> Wisdom is the perfect fruition. The generation of a remedial consciousness that is approximately concordant with this and the immaculate dharma of the Buddha as the cause for the arising of the correct view. So we have the cause, the Buddha, Buddha nature, Buddha garba, Tathagata garba, and then we have the, uh, the path, the means, which is the generation of a remedial I guess meaning like a uh, remedial meaning, a correcting or a, or a transformative consciousness that is approximately concordant with this, referring to the great, perfect, sorry, the perfect 
fruition. So we try, we uh, get as close as we can to the fruition using our idea of the fruition, and we continually refine that. We we try to experience that through our consciousness until our consciousness dissolves into wisdom. Therefore, one speaks of making the fruition the path, the basic scheme in Vajrayana. In, in all of Vajrayana is taking the fruition as the path, so we have the continuity of ground, path, and fruition. <clears throat> Meaning that the same reality serves as the ground, the path, and the fruition. Ultimately, what are labeled, regarded, and conceived of as this triad of ground, path, and fruition are merely conceptual superimpositions. Actually, they do not exist. You may wonder, so what does exist ultimately? Or you may not wonder anything, but he was wondering that. Uh, what exists is naturally pure mind beyond the entire web of imagination. Not, not particularly a prasangika uh, uh, type of uh, statement. Uh, it's uh, a type of a, um, non-implicative negation. It's the traditional prasangika. So there's an undercutting of anything as being existent with nothing else put forward. And here we have actually something put forward. Pure mind, naturally pure mind. That is the basic element of sentient being, Satagata Garva. The, their Buddha heart therefore express its mode of being by saying, and this is the root first, the basic element of sentient beings is the stainless Buddha heart endowed with the two realities. <clears throat> so the Buddha nature is endowed with these two realities. The Buddha heart, this Buddha heart is indeed nothing but the stainlessness in terms of the mistakenness of the eight collections of consciousness mentioned above. So it's the stainless aspect of these consciousnesses. Um, but since those who have not revealed the actuality of the two realities are ignorant about the mode of being of dependent origination and thus fixate on different views they circle around, i.e. in samsara, they are mistaken, just as Noble Nagarjuna describes in his Mahayana Vimshika, which is a very short summary of the Mahayana, only like a few pages. <clears throat> How sentient beings experience objects is exactly like in the case of illusions. Beings have the nature of illusions, just like them. They originate dependently. Both beings and objects. Just as a painter may paint the form of a terrifying yaksha and then become frightened by it himself. <laughs> wake up in the middle of the night with this huge canvas in the room with this terrifying beast and scare yourself to death or get really drunk, you know, and wake up. Um, the samsara of the stupid is like that. So we create our own confusion and get entangled by it. Just as through their own struggling in a swamp, some childish beings sink down into it, i.e. like the mud, <clears throat> by Trying to get out of the mud, it just sucks you in more. Through being swamped in the mire of imagination, sentient beings are unable to emerge. Those who view non-entities as entities, um, and by non-entities, he means things like 
appearances of all kind, like whatever appears, literally, people, computers, books, chairs, trees, clouds, universes. Those who experience non-entities as entities experience feelings of suffering. Mistaking things as being entities leads to suffering. Fettered through the poison of conceiving of objects and consciousnesses relative to this mistakenness, one may speak of attaining Buddhahood. But such can only be said in terms of seeming reality. How is this to be understood, Nagarjuna continues, through them seeing the lack of essence, through them being sentient beings, seeing the lack of essence, and through a mind of prajna and compassion, the two wings of enlightenment, in order to benefit beings, they are to be linked to perfect Buddhahood. So they they enter the uh, inescapable path that leads, in the path that leads inescapably to Buddhahood. Having gathered the accumulations of merit and wisdom through that, seemingly they attain unsurpassable enlightenment, being free from the fetters of imagination. Seemingly, meaning the sentient beings don't attain enlightenment, there are no sentient beings to be enlightened. And uh, similarly, from the other point of view, we read in the Lotus Sutra, where the Buddha says, I didn't like become enlightened after training for six years and sitting under the Bodhi tree and staying up all night. I have always been enlightened. Uh, let's see. You may wonder if what are labeled as sentient beings and Buddhas, whatever appears as our seeming reality, what is ultimate? How is ultimate reality? The Guhya Samadha Tantra, which is the root tantra of the uh, later trans, uh, translations, uh, later uh, introduction of Buddhism into Tibet. So the system of tantras that's common to Geluk, Kagyu, and Sakya schools, as opposed to the early tradition of the ancient ones, the Nyingma. Free from all entities with skandhas, Datus, ayatanas, apprehender and apprehended, relinquished due to the equality of phenomenal identitylessness, meaning the emptiness of phenomena. Your own mind is primordially unborn, being of the nature of emptiness. Wishing to teach this, I explain it further, Noble Nagarjuna, the great being, declares in his text, the Bodhicitta Vivarana, the commentary on Bodhicitta, the mind of enlightenment of the Buddhas is held to be unobscured by conceptions that cognize the self, skandhas, and so forth, while always being characterized by emptiness. So the enlightened mind of the Buddha is never obscured by our samsaric, deluded mind, and it is always characterized as being empty. As for these two realities here, I summarize the passage in the Vashnashnyana Samuchaya Tantra. It is said that the seeming, meaning the conventional or relative truth or reality, is the appearance of apprehender and apprehended. Its reality is like a reflection of the moon and water. The ultimate consists of the 18 emptinesses. Its reality is non-dual wisdom.
the 18 emptinesses is a, a very core scheme for how uh, emptiness is presented in the Prajnaparamita Sutras. There's a summary of the thousands of pages of Prajnaparamita Sutras into the scheme of 18 emptinesses. And sometimes they're class, they're, there's a list of 20 and sometimes 16. And they're all pretty similar because they're empty. Seeming is a term that stands for totally unreal. Therefore, what is imagined as the duality of apprehender and apprehended is non-existent in every aspect or respect. Also, Noble Maitreya states that all imaginary apprehenders and apprehended objects are simply non-existent in every respect. That's he's sort of repeating the other guy. His Madhyantavabhaga says consciousness arises as the appearance of reference. So consciousness appears as objects. Objects don't like exist out there independent on their own from their own side and then we encounter them and experience the perception of objects but consciousness rises as objects. So all of our all of us have this Alaya Vijnana which creates the image of the threefold world. And we all create a similar world because we have similar karma, which is why we all meet in this world realm and on this Zoom screen. But it does not have an external reference. There's nothing that, that those actually... Um, there's nothing about those appearances that exists independently. Since that does not exist, it, the consciousness, does not exist either because consciousness does not really exist without an object. So if there's no real object, there's no real consciousness, which is, begs the question, why did he say in the first place that consciousness arises as objects? Sorry, shouldn't question these things. Anyway, you may wonder, how are these appearances then presented as a reality? What merely appears while not existent, existing rather is called seeming reality which is everything we know, since precisely this feature <clears throat> is its undeceiving own essence. But isn't just this to be undeceiving ultimate reality? What is undeceiving is what is able to perform a function and is connected to valid cognition. So this is the traditional sutra, uh, Mahayana, uh, actually Sautrantika, the, one of the two earliest schools of thought in the Buddhist tradition, the definition of um, correct reality, genuine reality, what is able to perform a function and is, and is connected to valid cognition is, is perceived by valid cognition. So isn't it for this reason that the text on reasoning say, so he's raising an, an objection. What is able to perform a function is what exists ultimately. So this is this is the basic um, first thing that you learn when we go through the foundational preparatory texts for studying Abhidharma and logic um, as the preparation for studying middle way philosophy is learning as you go through uh, what's called the compendium of topics. 
It's a list of all the dharmas with their definitions and how they relate to each other, and then how those that are subjects encounter those that are objects. And it begins with, what is a thing? A thing is that which performs a function. And um, so he's quoting this. This is indeed a presentation of the nominal ultimate. The nominal ultimate is sort of a contradiction, but it's this this, um, Swatantrika Madhyamaka or Yogacara way of um, providing a sort of step ladder or a ladder in terms of understanding the ultimate by providing an ultimate that can be talked about and defined and derived logically as a way, as a stepping stone towards experiencing the true ultimate, which is completely beyond any such character, any characterization at all. So it's not really an ultimate, it's just nominally an ultimate, but for for those who follow the reasonings pertaining to the ultimate nature of phenomena, the ultimate reality consists of nothing but the natural emptiness mentioned above, whose aspects are explained as the 18 emptinesses. It's interesting how something, how emptiness can have characteristics or aspects. But this is also stated by Master Shiana Garba in his Satwa Dvaya Vibhanga. Just these very appearances as they appear, the seeming, the other as the counterpart. So here we're just like going through standard sort of Madhyamaka presentation. Wishing to divide these seeming appearances into the mere seeming and what is seemingly real. He says, the two, in other words, the two realities. He says, although phenomena are similar in their appearance, since they are able to perform functions or not due to being correct or false, the division of the seeming was made. So there is a, a division of seeming reality or, or a conventional relative reality in terms of like pure imagination versus things that function on a conventional level. Just as phenomena, nature of phenomena, the two realities as explained above are free from being exactly alike or other. You can't say that they're the same or different. Thus, being inexpressible is either being the same or different. Oh well. This principle is also the purport of all the dharmas that are realized and taught by the Buddhas, the Bhagavats. And the reason that they can't be the same or different is because one of them doesn't really exist. So it's like, what's the difference between a chicken? One of its legs is both the same. That's an old Madhyamaka uh, logic. I think Purdue, I think Purdue Lama... uh, is supposed to have said that. Anyway, um, Nagarjuna's commentary on his own root verses on the middle, called the Akutubhaya, says the Dharma is taught by the Buddhas, sorry, the Dharma taught by the Buddhas is perfectly based on the two realities, worldly seeming reality and ultimate reality. Those who do not understand the division of these two realities do not understand the profound true reality of the Buddha's teaching. The Dharma taught by the Buddha, so now he's going to comment on each word and each word from the root verses italicized. The Bhagavats came about based on these two realities. The so-called worldly seeming reality is the scene that all phenomena arise since the mistakenness of worldly beings does not realize that all phenomena are empty of nature. 
Seemingly, this is the very reality for just these beings. Hence, it is seeming reality. As for the ultimate reality, since the unmistakenness of the noble ones realizes it, it is the seeing that all phenomena do not arise. Do not arise. Ultimately, this is the very reality for precisely these noble ones. Therefore, it is ultimate reality. Those who do not understand the division of seeming reality and ultimate reality in this way are the ones who do not understand the profound true reality of the Buddhist teachings. You may think here, if this ultimate reality is that all phenomena are without arising, for what do you need the second conventional reality? And he responds, without relying on the conventional, the ultimate cannot be taught. So even the ultimate is, so even though the relative or the conventional is really a complete facade, without that we can't understand the ultimate, we need to use the relative. If we try to find the ultimate directly by searching for the ultimate, we can't find it. We find the ultimate by realizing that the relative is not truly existent. And without realizing the ultimate nirvana will not be attained. Since without relying on the conventional, the ultimate cannot be taught. And since without relying on the ultimate, nirvana will not be attained. Both realities need to be designated. Therefore, since correct imagination and view arise based on this mode of being, I say, what is produced by the conceptions that examine this is explained to be the remedial means of purification. Going back to the beginning of the chapter, talking about this remedial consciousness as the means of purification. Some people may think this is justified in the text of Mantra and the text of Yogacara, which both explain the meaning of the two realities as the Buddha heart in this way. But in the Madhyamaka text, it is taught that all phenomena are without nature. Therefore, there is no teaching in them that the Tathagata heart and the basic element exist. You should not be confused by just the words of the Madhyamakas. For Nagarjuna's Dharmadhatu Stava, praise to Dharmadhatu, discusses this extensively in passages such as the following. So he's doing this uh, uh, interpretive scheme where um, individuals who, uh, like Rangjun Dorje, cleave to the third turning of the wheel of the Dharma of the Buddha as being um, definitive use this text by Nagarjuna as, uh, as support for that. Whereas those who view the second turning as definitive basically ignore this text completely, interestingly enough. Likewise, from all seeds there are, fruits are born that match their cause. By which person could it then be proved that there is a fruit without a seed? This basic element, which is the seed, is held to be the basis of all dharmas. Through its purification step by step, the state of Buddhahood we will attain. Spotless are the sun and the moon, and moon, but obscured by fivefold stains. These are clouds and smoke and mist, Rahu's face and dust as well. I guess Rahu's is the, our equivalent of the man and the moon. Similarly, mind so luminous is obscured by fivefold stains. Their desire, malice, laziness, agitation, and doubt. 
A garment that was purged by fire may be soiled by various stains. When it's put into a blaze again, the stains are burned. The garment is not. Likewise, mind that is so luminous is soiled by stains of craving and so forth. The afflictions burn in wisdom's fire, but its luminosity does not. The, the luminous, empty, luminous mind is not changed by stains nor by purification. The sutras that teach emptiness, however many spoken by the victors, they all remove afflictions, but never ruin the statue. They don't um, undermine the reality of the Buddha Dhatu. Rahu's face is uh, eclipse, which I couldn't see because uh, it was so cloudy on Thursday when I got up at four. <laughs> I was like, where's oh, Rahu's face? <laughs> oh, darn. <laughs> but they, they actually, in the note, it says something about it being a demon. Yeah. Oh, that he obscures so when, when the moon. Eclipse, it's a this demon. This demon that, obscures the moon. Yeah, that's right. They, it's the one that swallows the moon. Right. <laughs> then he spits it out again. The synonyms, synonyms of the statue are taught in great detail in the text, the Uttara Tantra by Maitreya, such as in the following lines. As for the basic element of completely pure mind, its nature is the Dharmakaya suchness and the disposition to... There was a dot, dot, dot there. He spared us like a huge number of rather re repetitive lines. Thank you very much. Through nine examples, this text summarizes all the afflictions there are into 64 main types of afflictions. Those are main types. But their purification, making the stainless 64 qualities of Buddhahood appear. Thus, the basis of purification and the complete purification through the means of purification the basis of purification and the complete purification which comes about by applying the means of purification including their justification have been described in this vein I say all phenomena are taught to correspond in number to the basis of purification interesting in this way what is called the correct view of the mantra principle the mode of being of the two realities are the, are the great union free from extremes has been explained. The instruction on relinquishing the cherished belief systems of those who do not realize the mode of being of the two realities, which has two parts, and the first is the philosophical systems of Hinayana. No, actually, the non-Buddhist, I guess he skipped the non-Buddhist. This is taught by two verses and three lines, the Hinayana. First, the aspect of being mistaken about outer objects is discussed. The notions of external, minute particles and hidden entities flourish under the influence of not realizing that the potential for the appearances of objects lies in the alia and the, and the uh, sixth consciousness. Mentation, I think, is, is his term for the sixth or the seventh. The Vaibhashikas of our own Buddhist faction, faction, assert directly perceivable outer reference, that is, external reference that are minute particles other than mind, which either have parts or not, and either involve space between them and those particles that surround them or not, and so forth. While the Sautrantikas speak of hidden external matter, 
that it can't, that matter that we can't, um, there's a, there's the reality of matter cannot be seen with our human faculties because our faculties are gross and matter is so subtle and, and fine. So you need a, um, electron microscope to see the subtle particles and reveal the hidden matter which otherwise is hidden to the naked human eye. But since they do not realize that the potentials of the alia and mentation represent or trigger the factors that appear as objects, the mistakenness of conceiving these potentials as something else arises in them. However, there is nothing that is that is real as being different from and other than consciousness. Nevertheless, the teachings on the Dhatus, which contain explanations on matter consisting of minute particles and so on, are remedies for the thoughts that things such as a self or an agent exist. Therefore, I say nevertheless, in order to refute an agent such as a self, there are these teachings by the victor and the Buddha. The Garshan's Bodhicitta Vivarna says, as the entities have apprehended and apprehended the appearances of consciousness do not exist as outer objects that are different from consciousness. Therefore, in the sense of having the nature of entities, outer objects do not exist in any way. It is these distinct appearances of consciousness, i.e. the outer objects, that appear as the aspects of forms. Just as people with deluded minds see illusions, mirages, cities of Gandharvas, which are celestial beings that live on odors. They eat odors. Odor eaters is actually named after them. <laughs> um, and uh, they live in cities in the sky and they're not visible to normal humans. Uh, and so forth. The appearance of forms and such is just like that. The skandhus, datus, and so on were taught in order to put an end to clinging to a self. Self and person are stated as imputations, lacking even an atom's worth of being established as real substances. Also, the statement by some of our shravakas that a self and so on exist are mere imputations by names. Here he's presumably talking about a branch of the so-called Hinayana schools called the Pudgalavadas, those who teach that there is a, a person. But if a real and substantially established person existed, there would be flaws. In terms of reasoning, if this substance pertained to samsara itself, nirvana would not be tenable. And if this substance pertained to nirvana, one be, would already be liberated. One would be liberated effortlessly. Therefore, I'd say... It is taught that if they existed, i.e. the self and so on, there would be the flaws of effortless liberation or no liberation. This is the meaning that is discussed in detail in the Mahayana Sutra Alamkara. It should be said that the person ex it should be said that the person exists by imputation, but not in terms of substance. So when we say uh uh, something is substantially real. It means that its its reality is independent of conceptual imputation. It exists from its own side. It has its own basis. And the earlier schools hold that all dharmas exist in that way. They exist substantially and not by imputation, whereas the Madhyamaka tradition holds that 
all phenomena exist only by imputation and have no substantial existence. Oh, let's see. Factors to be relinquished and their remedies such as these, i.e. understanding egolessness, which appear to the mind accord with what the learned teach. Through understanding the above-mentioned causes and results, which appear to the mind, and also that everything in general is mine, bad views. <laughs> Couldn't he come up with a, I don't know, more elegant way? Bad, does he say bad views? He says bad views. Bad views are relinquished. It is through also relinquishing one's taking phenomena to be mine that true reality will be seen. It is, but it is through also relinquishing one's taking phenomena to be mine that true reality will be seen. So here he goes a step further and uh, sort of cuts down the, the um, simplistic way of understanding the, the chitta mantra, or mind only. The bodhicitta vivarna declares, by abiding in the view of mere mind, those with good fortune relinquish them too. For the Vijnanavadas, all this variety is established as mind. If you wonder what the nature of consciousness is, this shall be explained now. The teaching of the sage that all of these are mere mind is for the sake of removing the fear of childish beings and not meant in terms of true reality. As for the imaginary, the under, other dependent, and the perfect natures, their nature is the single character of emptiness. They are imputations onto mind. For those whose character is delight in the Mahayana, the Buddha's teach, teaching is in brief. Phenomena are identityless and equality, and mind is primordially unborn. Mahayana Sutra Lamkar also states, the mind is aware that nothing other than mind exists. Then it is realized that mind does not exist either. The intelligent ones are aware that both do not exist and abide in the Dharmadhatu, in which these are absent. So, that little four-line stanza summarizes the previous quotes from the Bodhicitta Vivarna of Nagarjuna and reveals this four-stage uh, process of Vipassana, that is the standard four stages of Vipassana in the Sutrayana tradition, which is that outer uh, phenomena, our mind, mind does not exist, the understanding of that does not exist, and therefore one uh, rests in space, Dharmadhatu, in which all of these are absent. And this is encapsulated in the four slogans of Atisha that are called the ultimate bodhicitta slogans for during meditation. Regard all dharmas as dreams, examine the nature of unborn insight, abandon even the antidote, and rest in the nature of alia, as well as in the fourfold pointing out of the um, Mahamudra system. Um, What is it? Everything is mind. All appearances are mind. Mind is empty. Emptiness is spontaneously present. And spontaneous presence is self-liberated. Remember all of those. There'll be a test on those later. 
Accordingly, also, the relinquishment of assertions such as some form of real cognizance is taught extensively. What? What is that? Accordingly, also, the relinquishment of assertions such as some form of real cognizance is taught extensively. Okay, relinquishing the, the ultimate reality of the mind. Therefore, one should realize the way to engage in the entire Mahayana. That is the basic nature of the two realities. So now we come to the ornament that explains the Dharma Dharma Tava Bhanga, which is one of the five dharmas or texts by Maitreya. And uh, Vibhanga means the distinction or the separation uh, and uh, it, between diff two different things, dharma or phenomena and dharmata is the nature of phenomena. So uh, the, the distinction, distinguishing of phenomena and the nature of phenomena, and it's uh, it's the shortest of his five texts, I believe, and uh, I circulated a translation of it by Carl Brenholzel, along with the reading reminder this week. So I'll just I'll refer to that briefly, and uh, the root text is fairly cryptic. And we immediately see the need for a commentary, but let's take a look at it. Here we go. Oh, I have to set it up first, sorry. Oh, and there's also the outline. So first thing you do with a text like these texts is you look at the outline, table of contents. So here we go. Topical outline of Maitreya's Dharma Dharma Tava Bhanga using Rangjan Dorje's commentary from uh, Mining for Wisdom, another of Karl Bernholtz's uh, massive tomes. So um, the outline is uh, the first, I skipped the first part, which is uh, in some sort of discussion of the title of the text, and then there's the actual topics. There's a brief introduction and a detailed. And the brief one has a general instruction, has a distinction or distinguishing between phenomena and their nature. You know, what are they? How do they diff? What are we talking about? What are the defining characteristics of phenomena? What are the defining characteristics of the nature of phenomena? The manner that, in what way are we mistaken about these two? That the fact that if one of them does not exist, i.e., phenomena, then um, the two of them, um, you can't say that the that the two of them are separate or different, just like with the two realities, and so not asserting them as being one or different. Then there's the detailed explanation. Is first um, he goes through phenomena. What is the matrix of phenomena and what is the manner of comprehending the non-existence of, oh, sorry, that's three should not be there, of the appearance of apprehender and apprehended. And then what's the nature, how do we comprehend the nature of phenomena, the defining characteristic? What is the matrix, the foundation or the basis? And then he goes through a uh, few of the five paths, preparation, scene, familiarization. And then uh, the final stage of no more learning here called path of completion. And then the idea of fundamental change of, of state. 
and then we have some examples and conclusions. And so there, there, for some reason, there's a prose and a verse version of this text, which are very similar, but different texts that come down through the ages. So I shared the prose version, thinking that would be more, uh, perhaps more clear. And uh, pay homage to youthful Manjushri. Since something is to be relinquished after being understood and something else is to be made fully perceptible, therefore this treatise was composed out of the wish to distinguish these two through their defining characteristics. So in one verse stating the purpose of composing the text and the, the topic of the text. All this is summarized into two, i.e. phenomena and the nature of phenomena. What is characterized by phenomena is samsara. What is characterized by the nature of phenomena is nirvana of the three yanas. Here the three yanas refers to shravakayana, pratyeka, buddhayana, and bodhisattva yana, not hindiyana, mahayana, vajra. What appears as duality and how it is designated as false imagination, which is the defining characteristic. I'm sorry, what appears as duality and how is it, it is designated, i.e. by the conceptual mind, is false imagination, which is the defining characteristic of phenomena. As phenomena are basically uh, the objects of false imagination. The appearance of what does not exist is false. So everything that, that appears is non-existent. And only that which is non-existent appears, which is a confusing statement, but the idea is that all appearances are not real because they have no actual intrinsic or true reality. And so uh, they are false. All appearances are false. And the only thing that appears is things that have no true reality. What has true reality does not appear because it has no characteristics. So the appearance of what does not exist is false. Being without reference in all respects, so those appearances just don't point to anything, uh, any real basis of their appearance. Imagination is mere conception. On the other hand, the defining characteristic of the nature of phenomena, true reality, is suchness which is you know, just another name, but which lacks any distinction between apprehender and apprehended or between object of designation and what designates them. Object of designation being generally thought of as some external object, but in this case being presented as appearances. And what designates appearances is the conceptual mind. The mistakenness due to what ex does not exist appearing is the cause of afflictions or afflicted afflictiveness, just like seeing illusory elements and so on, elephants and so on, and also because what exists is not seen. We see what does not exist and we don't see what exists. What exists is the nature of phenomena. If any of these two, non-existence and appearance, did not exist, mistakenness, unmistakenness, afflicted phenomena, and purified phenomena would not follow the whole scheme. Nothing would really make sense. These two are neither one nor different because there is a difference as well as no difference in terms of existence and non-existence. 
they're different in that one exists and the other doesn't exist and therefore there's no difference because you can't compare something to nothing the realization of phenomena through six points is unsurpassable being comprehending the defining characteristic the rationale being neither one or different their matrix what is common and not and the non-existence of the famous apprehender and apprehended and so forth so this is the root text and it's just a few pages just uh, what is it seven six pages these colophons are really cool actually so this is the tibetan he translated it from the tibetan and so the tibetan always has who translated it and it was translated, edited, and then reviewed and finalized by an Indian abbot, Shantibhadra, and the great editor, translator, fully ordained monk, Sultram Gyawa, probably back in uh, the 12th century or something. It was corrected and finalized by the Kashmirian junior abbot, Pandita, junior abbot Pandita, <laughs> Parahita, and the great editor, translator, fully ordained monk, Gador brother of uh, Tobar, the ape man, at the practice place that is the temple of Tolang, Mangalam, may there be benefit. Mangalam means may there be benefit. Anyway, enough of uh, that. So, back to our commentary on the root texts. And uh, uh, it's possible we may not make it through the full commentary this evening, and we'll just continue to kick things down the road is, is done in samsara, right? Just procrastinate. Page unnumbered. Page number without number, 172, which we determined by valid cognition, by inferential cognition, right? You don't see the page number, but the next page is 172, so this is it's got to be. Anyway, never mind. Brief introduction to phenomena and their nature. Vasubandhu's commentary. So Vasubandhu writes a commentary on this text. Says that all noble objects are contained in phenomena and their nature. So this is a division in terms of their characteristics. But it is neither a division in terms of them being different objects, nor a division in terms of singling out these two from among a great number of potential objects to discuss. They're not two different objects because one of them doesn't exist. The nature of phenomena and their nature consists of the three natures, with samsara consisting of the imaginary nature and the other dependent natures, and the perfect nature, suchness, and perfect wisdom being nirvana. So, uh, uh, explanation of the two topics of phenomena and their nature in terms of the three natures of the Yogacara tradition. Therefore, there's a division in terms of characteristics. For example, just when a rope is mistaken for being a snake, the imaginary nature is like the snake for which the rope is mistaken. That is, a non-existent that seems to appear. In the case of a rope that looks like a snake, the snake is completely non-existent. You can't say that the rope and the snake are one or different, the same or different. 
The other dependent nature is like the rope. It appears, but it is not real in the way it appears, since all it appears is a mere collection of threads with certain color and shape. We call that a rope by virtue of conceptual imputation. The perfect nature is a the snakes and the rope's very own nature of lacking any reality. An unmistaken self-awareness, since such awareness is without mistakenness about what appears to it. Therefore, phenomena and their nature do not exist as different objects. The very meaning is expressed by Nagarjuna. Between samsara and nirvana, there's not the slightest difference. Between nirvana and samsara, there is not the slightest difference. Furthermore, the domain of all phenomena of samsara and nirvana is the dharmadhatu, which is their general characteristic. The Madhyatapabhaga says, except for the dharmadhatu, there is thus no phenomena. So the dharmadhatu is the, the only thing that's real. Therefore, it is the general characteristic. General meaning common or pervading, I guess. This is the unmistakenness about it. As for not singling out these two phenomena and their nature from among great number of potential topics, Vasubandhu's commentary says that the entirety of the Buddha's presentation um, of skandhas, dhatus, ayatanas, and so on, when summarized, is twofold. That is phenomena and their nature. So it's not picking out two topics from among a list of 25 or 30 or whatever, but instead these two encapsulate all other topics. The division of phenomena and their nature based on their defining characteristics, both the imaginary and the other dependent natures are explained to be obscurations. Both the imaginary and the other dependent natures are explained to be obscurations and phenomena. They're both obscurations and phenomena. While the perfect nature of the fundamental change of state is said to be the nature of phenomena in terms of how the two two topics match to the three natures as we saw before. Therefore, uh, this includes all ten topics of the Mahayana Samgraha, which is the compendium of Mahayana by Asanga. Another enumeration of these is stated in Laka Avatara Sutra in the five dharmas, the three natures, the eight consciousnesses, and the two kinds of identitylessness, the entire Mahayana is included. The two types, kinds of identitylessness are of persons and phenomena, and in terms of the five dharmas, he will explain that briefly, uh, shortly. As for the relationship between the five dharmas and the three natures, one, names and causal features, which I believe is the first, maybe the first and second of the five dharmas, are imagine, are the imaginary nature. Imagination, which is another of the five dharmas, is the other dependent nature. Now that's probably confusing, because we have the imaginary nature and then we have imagination. But imagination is the activity of the mind, and the mind is the dependent nature. And the, the mind of sentient beings imagines the imaginary with the act of imagination we we construe objects and phenomena as being 
there as they appear. So imagination is the other dependent nature. These two natures make up phenomena. Perfect wisdom, on the other hand, refers to the uncontaminated phenomena that consist of the realities of cessation and the path in terms of the Four Noble Truths. Three and four. Suchness is the nature of the two realities that abides in all knowable objects. That is the lack of nature of all phenomena. Among the latter two, the former is the unmistaken perfect nature and the latter is the unchanging perfect nature. So there's two different types of, of perfect nature, the unmistaken and the unchanging. And suchness, by the way, let's see, the five dharmas are like, let's see, names and causal features, imagination, um, perfect wisdom, and suchness would be the five dharmas, I believe. Among the latter two, the former is the unmistaken perfect, and the latter is the unchanging perfect. So the former is the perfect wisdom. That refers to the uncontaminated phenomena. And so that is the unmistaken perfect nature. And the latter, suchness, is the unchanging perfect nature. Two different sort of uh, aspects of the perfect nature. Interesting that they can ha it can have different aspects. In a general way, these three natures are referred to as alia really meaning Alia Vishnana. Well, the first two natures are called Alia Consciousness. Interesting. So in a general way, all three natures are Alia, while the first two are Alia uh, Vishnana. Since the other consciousnesses, the afflicted mind and the six collections, are in a mutual relationship of dependent origination with the Alia Consciousness, of each causing each other, the Alia Vishnana causes the other consciousnesses, and the other consciousnesses then cause the Alia Vishnana. Uh, and when we say cause, that means like to arise momentarily. Um, the eight consciousnesses are explained to be the obscurations. So these are what were diluted by the four wisdoms, on the other hand, are taught to be stainlessness are thought to be the stainlessness of these consciousnesses, the purified or the, pu the purifiable aspect of consciousnesses, thus being the perfect nature with Dharmadhatu wisdom being like the matrix of all of these, the fifth wisdom. Therefore, these consciousnesses and wisdoms are the factors to be relinquished and the remedies respectively, respectively, rather. Consciousnesses are to be relinquished. Give up your consciousness. Just leave it at the door. Put your hands up and give me your consciousnesses. And um, and the remedies is, are the five wisdoms. For this reason, the assertion by some people who present the unfolding disposition. The unfolding disposition is a reference to the Tathagata Garma. So some people present the Dottagata Garbha as being based on the Alaya Vijnana, and thus say that the dharmas during subsequent attainment, meaning in the period after the first experience of the path of seeing, of meditative equipoise, focused on the true nature of reality, is empty, which, which accomplished the two kayas, the dharmas after, uh, during subsequent attainment, accomplish the two kayas, 
the Dharmakaya and the Rupakaya. These arise from the Ali, saying that these arise from the Ali consciousness is just wrong. These are completely separate. Also, since the sutras and tantras explain that this unfolding disposition relinquishes the Aliya consciousness by destroying it, like a Vajra. That's a little bit of an odd statement. It, it, it would make more sense if he said, by destroying it as if with a Vajra. But Karl obviously knows that and therefore must be translated net accurately, which leaves it as a little bit confusing, but um, the result is, if you hold that view, then you have a philosophical system with the assertion that Buddha, Buddhas do not possess, who do not possess wisdom came about, that this is wrong. Which is a convoluted way of, of sort of saying that um, there's something present in the mind stream of sentient beings that uh, is the seed of Buddhahood. Even though, you know, in the first part he said, if you think that the Buddha nature evolves from the Aliya Vijnana, that's wrong. But at the same time, there, there is this uh, sort of stainless mentation that exists at the time of a, of a sentient being, which is separate from the Aliya Vijnana, which is the seeds of learning and contemplation that turn into Buddhahood, that lead to Buddhahood. This is also said in the Mahayana Samgraha, which identifies the Aliyah consciousness in terms of afflicted phenomena. Those are equivalents, or synonymous, but does not include any purified phenomena in it. So this notion that there are purified phenomena, that, such as those um, one develops or encounters or reveals along the path, but they do not abide in the Aliyah Vijnana. They're not included in it. All afflicted phenomena that entail arising adhere to it as its resultant entities, or it adheres to them as its causal entity. So this uh, mutually mutual cause causative cause and effect relationship between uh, afflicted phenomena and um, the Aliyah Vijnana and so forth. Therefore, it is called the Aliyah Vijnana. Furthermore, in the context of explaining the dominant condition, meaning um, the, what, what is the sense base of a, of a consciousness? The dominant condition of an eye consciousness is the eye sense faculty that's like a blue flower that resides in the, in the eye ball. The Mahayana Samgraha says, just as the Ali consciousness is the cause of afflicted phenomena, these afflicted phenomena in turn are presented as the causal condition for the Aliya consciousness. So this closed loop. Since no other causal condition is observable, it's, a, it's an enclosed system. This is the basis of samsaric dependent origination, there being different types of origination, the dependent origination of differentiating the nature. Based on it, the 12 links of the, de of the dependent origination of differentiated what is desired and undesired come about, which is called samsara. The dependent origination of nirvana, on the other hand, consists of the two aspects of the perfect nature, which were the unmistaken perfect and the unchanging perfect, uh, sorry, the unchanging and the mistaken. Respectively, these latter two should be understood as the two realities.
in terms of the nature of knowable objects and the two realities in terms of the convention of the pure minds that are the knowers of these objects. So um, these two, the changing, unchanging and unmistaken, should be understood as the two realities. The first one um, being the nature of knowable objects, the ultimate reality, and the other one being the pure mind that understands um, the true nature, which is the unmistaken. These are explained as the two dharmakayas, two dharmakayas, and represent the remedy for the alia consciousness. How could the maturational consciousness with all the seeds, which is a, one of the aspects of the alia vishnana, is that's the mat, it's the uh, maturing consciousness, which is the cause of all of, of afflicted phenomena, be the seed of its remedy, that is super mundane mind. So, you know, if, if it's a circular system, how does enlightenment ever come about? Since super mundane mind is not contained in the minds of ordinary beings, unlike what I just said a little while ago, and I phrased it incorrectly, the latent tendencies of this super mundane mind do not exist in them. But if these latent tendencies do not exist in them and must be stated from which seeds they arise, super mundane mind originates from the natural outflow of the pure dharmadhatu, that is the seeds which are the latent tendencies for listening. So there's this latent tendencies that give rise ultimately to these, to what we call or appears as Buddhahood. Um, and they're present at the time of ascension beings, but they're not, they're not of the nature of ascension being. They're not of the nature of the Aliyah Vishnana. They have this mysterious status. They float around us without us knowing that they're there. Because these Derek, latent... I, Derek, sorry, I have a question. So are the latent tendencies... Um, synonymous with Buddha nature, sort of? Well, not synonymous, but they are the link between a sentient being and Buddha nature. Okay. So the latent tendencies for all the different aspects that, uh, that when, uh, you know, when the means of purification are applied correctly, those latent tendencies then, uh, Contribute to the appearance of Buddhahood. I'm trying to say it as like carefully as I can, to, so as not to like fall in any sand traps. But. <laughs> so uh, between these latent tendencies and the stains that exist right now as a mixture, because these latent tendencies and the stains exist right now as a mixture, so they're all mixed up in our mind. What these latent tendencies for listening? Listening is like this is the first of like a list of uh, remedial uh, factors that uh, one must apply on the path. What the latent tendencies for listening and dependence on the enlightenment of a Buddha are, which matrix they enter, and that they enter the maturational consciousness in a manner of coexisting with it. They enter into the Alaya Vijnana in a manner of coexisting with it. They're infiltrating. All this is like a mixture of milk and water. Now, in the Indian 
and therefore Tibetan tradition, when you mix milk and water, they only appear to mix, but they never actually mix. The milk particles stay separate from the water. And so they, they sort of uh, uh, um, float around each other, but they don't actually mix. Similarly, the latent tendencies for Buddha nature um, intermingle with the latent tendencies of samsara, but they don't actually mix. They're not the only consciousness because they're the seeds of the remedy. It's remedy. Therefore, as taught below, the Dharmakaya originates from uncontaminated dharmas. So therefore, the, the, the Buddha nature, Buddha, sorry, Buddhahood, arises from these uh, stainless um, tendencies, latent tendencies, not from afflicted phenomena. We can't change afflicted phenomena into purified phenomena. All we can do is um, enhance or expand pure phenomena. So the Dharmakaya originates from uncontaminated dharmas, but since the basic element of the stainless Dharmakaya exists right now, the dharmas that are its natural outflow arise. Look at Look at this in detail in the Mahayana Samgraha and the Yogacara Bhumi. Yogacara Bhumi is a massive text by Asanga. Um, I summarize what is taught here in all seriousness <laughs> in some intermediate verses. Now, why does he say in all seriousness? Why does he need to say that? That was a weird thing to say. I summarize what is taught here. Does he mean here or there? Anyway, in the sky of great Dharmadhatu, the characteristics of samsara and nirvana are like illusions. The perfect nature, as the dependent origination of the nature of phenomena, consists of the dharmakaya and the dharmas that are its natural outflow. So there's the dependent origination of the, the perfect nature and its phenomena. And there's the dependent origination of samsaric mind. The dependent origination of what does not exist yet appears, i.e. samsara, samsaric appearances, consists of the causes and results of non-realization, conception, conceptual mind, and imagination. And the alia consciousness, that is based on, all, on them. When you understand these two in an unmistaken way, this is the prajna that is, distinguishes samsara and nirvana. Even though the garden, he just quoted the garden and said there's no difference between them, so how are you distinguishing them? Which is praised by the victors. Nowadays, most scholars and siddhas are like blind people speaking about grabbing an elephant, referring to this famous analogy of um, the Buddha used, where he says, if nine blind men approach an elephant, all from different sides, and are asked to describe what an elephant is, having never seen one, but just having felt one, they will all describe it very differently. Therefore, take seriously what is elucidated here in this treatise on phenomena and their nature. No, no um, snickering. Take this very seriously. This completes the instruction on the division of phenomena and their nature. The defining characteristic of the first phenomena is taught in three parts, starting with the defining characteristics. Quoting the Dharma Dharma Tavabhanga itself, he says, what appears as duality and how it is designated as false imagination, which is the defining characteristic of phenomena, false imagination. 
what appear as duality are the six apprehended objects, i.e. the objects of the six senses, which appear as form, sounds, smells, tastes, tangible objects, and phenomena. Phenomena are the objects of mind. And um, the six apprehending consciousness of eyes, ears, and so forth. As for how these are designated based on conceptions, names are imputed, such as this is form based on the distinct features of color and shape that derive from such form. For example, the name moon is imputed on something white and round in the sky. Based on such imputations, characteristics of this white and round referent are apprehended and so on. So there you see a good example of a referent. The moon is the referent of the word moon, <laughs> which is an imputation upon that thing that's white and shiny and round in the sky. Um, what would appear to be designated in these ways is also false imagination. Thus, based on the twelve ayatanas, what appears as duality and how it is designated represents phenomena. This is the instruction on the complete and unmistaken characteristics of phenomena. The hermeneutical etymology of this false imagination. The Dharma Dharmatavabhanga says, since what does not exist appears, it is unreal. Wonderful little phrase. What does not exist appears. Therefore, it is unreal. Since these phenomena are not existent yet appearing, they are unreal. You may wonder, how is it that they do not exist? Though childish beings think that something like a visible form is really existent, it is actually without real existence. Though something like a vase is not real as something singular, as it consists of many minute particles. The shravakas indeed cling to these particles as being real, but if these particles are divided into ten or six sides by virtue of their parts, and uh, the ten would be like, I think, the four cardinal and intermediate directions and the zenith and the nadir and the six would be like the top the bottom the front left right and back um, thus if the object is not real how could it be reasonable that the consciousness which apprehends the apprehended aspect that appears as a vase be unmistaken so the partless particles is an impossibility so they're not real and so the consciousness that perceives them is not a valid consciousness. This is obvious from the words of the great being Maitreya. If there's nothing apprehended, partless particles being a, an example of nothing apprehended, there's no apprehender of it. Without this, consciousness does not exist either. Therefore, it is established that reference do not really exist. At the same time, they also appear. That is by virtue of the dependent origination of object sense faculty and consciousness <laughs> so phenomena that are unreal appear by virtue of unreal cause and effect and uh, they appear as mere cognizance in the form of the aspects of color and shape so the mind just takes on the aspect of the re of the objects or the reference such as the aspect that is a vase Master Dignaga says in his Alambana Parikshavriti, the commentary on the grasping of an object, the nature of inner knowable objects is that which appears as if it were external. This is what appears as a referent, 
while there are no outer reference, that which appears as if it were external definitely exists inside. This is the object condition. The Aliyavishnana. Inner knowable objects are nothing but mere cognizance. Since nothing but this appears as the aspects of objects, of object, sense, faculty, and consciousness, these seem to function as object condition, dominant condition, immediate condition, respectively for each other. The, the, the uh, three, four main conditions that combine together to produce an appearance or, or an arising. Therefore, this cognizant is called, cognizance is called other dependent. He seems to be concretizing the cognizance, though, doesn't he? But yeah, Mahayana Sutra Lankara says, what appears as three aspects, each are the characteristics of apprehender and apprehended. The three aspects are the object, the sense faculty, and the consciousness, which are false imagination, which are false imagination, the defining characteristic of the other dependent. The other dependent nature is false, consists of false imagination. It is the mind which falsely imagines things to be real, appearances to be real. What appear as the three aspects of places, reference, and bodies are not at all established as having the nature of such places and so on, being nothing but mere conception. Appearances exist as mere mistakenness. For these reasons, one speaks of false imagination and the imaginary. This is twofold, the nominal imaginary and the imaginary without any characteristics. So similar to the ultimate having two gradations, the relative or nominal, as he calls it here, has two gradations. Um, the nominal imaginary and the actual imaginary, which is without any characteristics. In brief, it consists of names and causal features. So names are the nominal imaginary, nominal being with, with a name. So the, the imaginary that exists by virtue of, of uh, language, names by labeling, i.e. moon, the word moon. And uh, causal features are like the white and shiny object round. The above three aspects of what is apprehended as well as the three aspects of the apprehender, i.e. the afflicted mind, apprehension through the five sense doors, and the sixth mentation, including the conceptual consciousness, appear like this, but they are not real. Therefore, they are false imagination. Yet another meaning of imagination <clears throat> the root text says there are no reference in any case and they are mere conception therefore they are imagination they do not really exist as reference but they appear thus by virtue of beginningless latent tendencies such as those of forms and feelings the causal features of reference appear as at present they appear as if they were reference and there are discriminations of them. All these make up the nominal imaginary nature. The Mahayana Sujalamkara says the causal features of, of reference are designated, as, sorry, as designated, their latent tendencies and the appearances, the appearance of reference through them are the defining characteristics of the imaginary. 
by virtue of having labeled something white and round in the sky as moon when its name is pronounced. Even if this referent is not visible, a white and round aspect comes to mind. So whenever we say the word moon, even though we're not looking at it and experiencing it through valid cognition, we think moon comes to mind, the aspect of the moon comes to mind, the general, generally characterized aspect of moon. Likewise, with regard to the aspect that is a certain shape, having a round belly and so on, uh, one may think this is most men have round bellies and so on, but it also applies to a vase. These are instances of the imaginary nature. The Mahayana Sutra Lamkara says that reference appear like their names and names like their reference is the cause of false conception. So this level of the uh, seeming reality that is created by labeling or all labeling, which is the defining characteristic of the imaginary. These two kinds of the imaginary are nothing but conceptions and expressions that are based on conceptions. So first there's conceptions, it's one level of seeming reality, or the imaginary, and then the other level is um, expressions that are based on conceptions. So the concept of there, of there being something like a moon, and then the name, the word moon, thus not existing as actual reference, therefore they're called imagination. Those who cling to them, just as deers chasing after a mirage, create nothing but suffering, therefore this is pointless. This completes the explanation of the characteristics of phenomena. Uh-huh. Okay, how about their nature? The root text says the defining characteristic of the nature of phenomena is suchness, which is a word. What is the referent of that word? Dharmadhatu. Another word. What's the referent of that word? The, the true nature of phenomena, which is without a difference between apprehender and apprehended, or objects of designation and what designates them. The appearance of the duality of apprehender and apprehended is not real. Therefore, the fact that this duality actually does not exist is the basic nature that is the nature of phenomena. The nature of phenomena is the non-existence of phenomena. As for this nature being without a difference between objects of designation and what designates them, because neither is real, non-duality cannot be expressed, just as when Manjushri rejoiced in Vimalakirti not saying anything. <laughs> finally he shut up. <laughs> He's just been talking endlessly, and finally he, it was just some peace and quiet. No, so he's talking about this famous scene in the, this wonderful sutra called the Vimalakirti Nirdesha Sutra, the teaching of Vimalakirti. And if you were to pick one Mahayana Sutra to read, it should be that one, the teaching of Vimalakirti. And there's one chapter where um, there's all these great bodhisattvas there, and they go one by one trying to explain, present the ultimate nature of reality. And finally, Manjushri goes last, next to last, and he gives this wonderful presentation of the nature of reality as being groundless and rootless and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, and how about you, noble Vimalakirti? And Vimalakirti is unique because he's a householder. He's a yogi. And uh, he's like the uh, model for 
uh, what we ideally are. Anyway, he's, he doesn't say anything. And so that's the most profound statement of the nature of ultimate reality. This is the basic nature that is the perfect nature. The imaginary is absolutely non-existent. If that non-existence is realized to be non-existence, this is unmistakenness, which consequently exists. The unmistakenness exists. Hmm. However, on the level of seeming reality, both existence and non-existence are equal in being nothing but mere cognizance. Ultimately, both samsara and the, the lack of peace and nirvana, peace, cannot be discriminated as different within non-conceptual wisdom. Therefore, this is the perfect nature. As the ornament of the Mahayana Sutras states, being non-existent, existent, and the existence, I'm sorry, and the equality of existence and non-existence, the lack of peace and peace and non-conceptuality, these are the defining characteristics of the perfect, all these opposites. How is the perfect nature to be understood? It's twofold here. The unchanging perfect nature is expressed through the name emptiness because it is empty of the characteristics of both the imaginary and the other dependent. Since this is never other, it is called suchness. So suchness is the emptiness of the characteristics of the imaginary and the other dependent. Because it is the unmistaken actuality to be realized, it is the true end. This is the end, because it is the cessation of the characteristics of the above two. It is signlessness. Without a sign, without a characteristic, there's no, nothing to grab onto, no handle, nothing upon which to conceptualize. Because it is the sphere of the noble ones, it is the ultimate. Because it is the cause of the dharmas and the noble ones, it is the dharmadhatu. These are its synonyms. As the Madhyantavabhanga says, if emptiness is summarized, suchness, the true end, signlessness, the ultimate, and dharmadhatu are its synonyms. By virtue of not being other, not being mistaken, putting an end to signs. Imagine that a world without signs. Just like driving and there's no indication of what to do man. Um being the sphere of noble ones and being the cause of the dharmas of the noble ones, the meaning of the synonyms match the above order. Which sort of explains like the way traffic is in India. If you've ever been in India and you see the way that they drive, it's just like insane. They clearly have no signs. They just live in a signless world. Here the unmistaken perfect nature is the nature of the wisdom of the noble ones, top of 179, produced by perfect prajna. Its enumerations are said to be the ten kinds of unmistakenness. <laughs> there's the, there's the undifferentiated emptiness, and there's the 18 kinds of emptiness, and here we have the ten kinds of unmistakenness. That is being unmistaken about letters how to write business letters and personal letters, <clears throat> their meaning, the meaning of letters, mental engagement, not straying away, the specific characteristic of phenomena, the general characteristic of phenomena, impurity, impurity, what is adventitious, non-aversion, and lack of arrogance. That's a cool one. Humbleness. 
so this is taught in the detail in, in the Madhyanta Vibhanga, and this is in the section on insight, that there's ten uh, realms of non of unmistakenness. That is the function of insight or of Vipassana. Letters meaning mental engagement, not straying away the two characteristic impure and impure, what is animatitious, not aversion and lack of arrogance. In brief, the two aspects of the perfect nature are to be understood through the following division. The former is the, is the Dharmakaya, that is the stainless Dharmakaya. So we're talking about the perfect nature now and its two types. One is the stainless Dharmadhatu and the latter is the very profound Dharmakaya, which is the natural outflow of the stainless Dharmadhatu. So two types of Dharmakaya, the stainless Dharmadhatu and the outflow of the stainless Dharmadhatu. Through these, the characteristics of the nature of phenomena are taught in a complete and unmistaken way. You may wonder if there's no mistakenness in the nature of phenomena. While mistakenness itself does not really exist, how does we become mistaken? How does, how does ignorance happen? We're back to that old question again. <laughs> started the fire, is that what it's called? Oh, let's see, the way of being mistaken. This is discussed through three topics. The appearance of what does not exist. The Dharmanatu Vibhanga says, the appearance of what does not exist is mistakenness. Therefore, it is the cause of afflictedness. So all this appearance is mistakenness and the cause of affliction. While not existing, Based on the other dependent nature, the threefold afflictedness of afflictions. There's three types of afflictedness. Being afflicted by afflictions, a little bit redundant, karma and rebirth, arises. This is mistakenness. How does it arise? Independence on the seeds that are the latent tendencies of expression. Cognizance arises in the form of another list. Bodies, possessors of bodies, experiences what is experienced by them. Your experience, time, enumeration, lands, lands or realms, and conventions, like the Democratic and the Republican National Convention, from the seeds that are the latent tendencies of views, cognizance arises in the form of the, uh, ten, the distinctions between self and others. From the seeds of the branches of existence, Cognizance arises in the form of eleven, the deaths and transitions of the happy realms and the miserable realms. In these eleven kinds of cognizance, all beings, all realms, beings, and birthplaces are included. They constitute false imagination, which is the other dependent characteristic. The fact that based on this, nothing but this mere cognizance appears as reference, though there are no reference, that's the imaginary nature. Then the threefold afflictedness of afflictions, karma, and birth makes one suffer. Since these are nothing but mere conception, it is taught that there are no reference. Sort of an uh, enclosed circular system. But I think that's the very nature of samsara, is that it's an enclosed circular system. So they don't seem to be bothered by this. Um, one should know that the glorious Dharmakirti, also, too, had this in mind when he said, what is connected with conception does not entail the clear appearance of reference. Whatever the hell that means. <laughs> what, what is connected with conception does not entail. So uh, when we have conception, 
that doesn't mean that there's actually outer reference, I guess. It does not entail a clear appearance, I don't know. Thus, one should not entertain views that assert outer reference. Okay, okay, we got that. We got that. Also, the Yukti Shastiki, the uh, emptiness of the 60 uh, verses by Nagarjuna says, since the Buddha said that the world entails the condition of ignorance, why should it not be justified that this world is conception? Once ignorance has ceased, why should it not be clear that that which will cease was imagined by ignorance. Two verses that sort of overlap. For example, or mirror each other, for example, for false imagination in the Dharma Dharma Tavabhanga says, the example says, sorry, it is like the appearance of an elephant in a magical illusion. Elephants Horses, riches, and so on that are produced by an illusionist appear, but they do not exist in the way they appear. Likewise, false imagination does not exist, yet it appears. The Karshanist Mahayana states how sentient beings experience objects is exactly like in the case of illusions. Beings have the nature of illusions, just like them, they originate dependently. As for the non-appearance of what exists, and, and the, the whole point of saying that things exist, um, originate dependently is that they don't originate independently on their own and therefore, uh, therefore phenomena are unreal non-existence because they originate dependently. As for the non-appearance of what exists, the Dharma Dharma says, and furthermore, because what exists does not appear either. Thus it is mistakenness because what is to be what is to be realized through the three yanas, the existence of twofold identitylessness, does not appear as the Mahayana Sutra Lamgri says. Therefore, it is, what is this particular kind of darkness of not seeing what exists and seeing what does not exist? That is sort of bizarre that we see what doesn't exist and we don't see what exists. Though the two aspects of the perfect nature exist, they're not seen. Consequently, this is mistaken, as the Yukteswara says. The victors have declared that nirvana alone is real. So, which wise one would think that the rest is not delusive? Since the ultimate reality is not realized, this is mistakenness. It is just as in a mundane context, the thought of mistaking a cairn for a human being, a cairn, a cairn. How do you say Karen? Karen. In these ways, the reasons for being mistaken are understood. A Karen is like a piled up pile of rocks, right? Vertical. Without the one, they're not justified as two. So here's we attack whether they're the same or different. The root text says, if any one of these two, non-existence and appearance, did not exist, mistakenness, unmistakenness, afflicted phenomena, pure purified phenomena would not be justified. Through mistakenly using the reasons of appearance and non-existence respectively, one either conceives of appearances as existent, such as being real, a creator, itself, or one thinks that these appearances, despite being established as mere appearances, are utterly non-existent. This is called mistakenness for two reasons. As far as utter non-existence goes, it is not possible to be mistaken about what does not exist per se. That's a good one. Uh, 
as far as non-existence goes, it's not possible to be mistaken about what does not exist per se. So we're not really mistaken because it's all about what doesn't exist. Um, and if there indeed existed the slightest real entity, this existence would be without mistakenness. Furthermore, if there were no mistaken consciousness, the existence of an unmistaken consciousness would be unreasonable too. Because it depends on the form of the unmistaken consciousness, depends on the mistaken consciousness, interestingly. If both did not exist, neither being afflicted and mistaken, some sort of nirvana as its purified state would be justified. If one accepts that these are not justified either, everything would simply be meaningless. Therefore, what would be the point of presenting samsara and nirvana? <laughs> we just all go home and watch TV. And if one thinks that either an absolutely an unchanging samsara or effortless liberation are reasonable, both of these notions contradict direct perception. An unchanging samsara, samsara changes constantly and there is no effortless liberation. Through realizing the reasons for being mistaken by virtue of non-existence and appearance, one also sees dependent origination, and through realizing that appearances are empty of reality, just as illusions, the correct consciousness of directly realizing that they are free from arising and ceasing appears. And based on this, yogic valid perception occurs, which gives rise to liberation. This meaning accords with what Noble Nagarjuna says in Yukti you are neither liberated through being nor through non-being from this samsaric existence. Great beings are liberated through fully understanding being and non-being. Maybe like it, the idea is that if he repeats the same thing over and over again enough, finally, like, we'll get it. It hasn't happened yet, but maybe at some point it will happen by virtue of just being repeated endlessly. Isn't that called brainwashing? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and that's what we're doing. We're washing our brains. <laughs> that's right. We're washing it out because the, the it's not really stained. It's just that yeah. there are stains and we're washing out the stains, right? Something like that? Yeah, something like that. And that's 9.15. There you have it. So we have a little bit more to do to finish this guy up next week. And then we finally get to uh, the more fun parts of the book. I know I've been saying that, and I no longer have any credibility. But I realized that <clears throat> my mistakenness is that I thought that things appear were real. And in particular, I thought that the auto comment, that the commentary, the profound inner reality was the same as I had read before. And I realized the one I'd read before was had a commentary by Jamgun Kongchul. And Jamgun Kongchul's commentary was so much clearer, his commentary to the profound inner principles, so much clearer and easier to read than Rong Jung Dorje's. So, I am hopeful that because from uh, the after the four poems, we have these two core texts, which were the main reason for the course, distinguishing consciousness and wisdom and pointing out Buddha nature. There's commentaries by Zhang Kongchul and not by Rong Jun Dorje. So hopefully it will be a lot clearer and easier to go through. 
So we're almost there. <laughs> anyway, um, hey, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. And uh, any comments or suggestions or questions or anything at all? You're all on, sort of on a, worn one out. of the notes, oh. 376. There's just this funny line. He says, also the statement by my omniscient guru, the seventh Karmapa. Is that the author saying he? Because we're talking about the third Karmapa. Who, no, I think he's um, quoting somebody else. I noticed that too, but it's he's yeah, quoting another. Oh, he's quoted Karma Trinley. You're, you're yeah. right, because I've heard that before, but he said yeah. it in a way. I mean, now it sounded like he was saying that, not yeah, that he was yeah. quoting somebody. Okay. Yeah, right. I remember that. wasn't that clear. What else? Anything good in the, in the footnotes? I mean, that footnote was pretty good the second half of it. 376. It just cleared up things for me. There was one footnote where where he refers to a text by Mipom that that correlates the three doors of liberation with the three root clashes. Footnote four twenty seven. According to Mipom Rimshi's commentary in the Madhyata Vibhaga, uh, a. <coughs> which is the first type of dependent, which has three further aspects, view, blah, blah, blah. Their respective remedies are the three doors of liberation, emptiness, signlessness, and wishlessness. And the remedy for this is the... Sorry. The three main... What has further aspects? Further aspects... A has three further aspects, view the three main afflictions and striving their respective remedies. So the remedies for... Oh, I mistook that, huh? The remedies for view is emptiness, and the remedies for the three afflictions is signlessness, and the, re the remedy for striving for rebirth is wishlessness. And there you have it. <laughs> what else? Somebody else had, uh, had a comment. Uh, Liz, Liz. I just wanted to thank whoever posted those recordings quickly. That was great. Thanks. Appreciate it. Oh, while you were away. Emily, all right. Yeah. And Morgan, teamwork. Thank you guys so much for, for doing that, making that happen, keeping that system going. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving and uh, rest and relax and have fun and don't get sick. And uh, hope to see you next week. By this merit, may all obtain omniscience, may defeat the enemy wrongdoing from the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death from the ocean of samsara. May I free all beings by the confidence of the golden sun of the great east. May the lotus garden of the Rigdon's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound brilliant glory. Cynthia, you have two sessions open. You have two boxes. Yeah, my when my internet cut out, I switched over to a different device and I didn't turn off the other one. I'll, I'll do that. Yeah. Anyway, they'll all be cut off shortly, so...
That's true. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye.